This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning. It's Saturday. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend, we're delighted to welcome a special guest, Deborah Leprevot, former senior FBI official, a principal leader addressing global corruption and strengthening the rule of law. Deborah had a 20-year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. Deborah served as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and was instrumental in launching the FBI's kleptocracy program. Deborah traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials. She has spent the past 23 years working on international corruption investigations, and she is also a forensic scientist and spent several years on the FBI's evidence response team unit at the FBI lab. Deborah, it is our great honor to welcome you back to America's Roundtable. A good morning to you. Welcome, Deborah. Well, good morning. Hi, great to see both of you again. Great to see you, Deb. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a result of unfinished work after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. With the breakup of Soviet Union, Eastern European countries, once governed by communist parties and under strong influence by Russia, were on the path to transition from communism to a market economy. And the problem arose, which Nobel laureate in economics Milton Friedman, who was one of the founding partners of our think tank International Leaders Summit, shared with us. And Friedman said, We said privatize, privatize, privatize. Instead, we should have established the rule of law first. So in the privatization of state-owned assets in Eastern Europe, the corrupt government officials gave away national wealth of these countries to their private partners in crime. Due to its vast natural resources, this process was most pronounced in Russia, where oligarchs became owners of massive natural resources, which were previously state-owned assets without the rule of law and protection of property rights. Former KGB senior official and authoritarian Vladimir Putin has maintained loyalty of these oligarchs and extended his own influence over other authoritarian and kleptocratic regimes in Eastern Europe through partnerships spearheaded by oligarchs. Deborah, you were instrumental in initiating the FBI's kleptocracy program and you were in the forefront working on international corruption investigations for over 25 years. You traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials. And in one of your interviews you shared, and I quote, When you have a bad, corrupt regime, you have instability in that country. When you have instability... What you don't have is jobs. And you want to talk about a breeding ground for terrorism? 
end of quote. Uh, Deborah, before we analyze the U.S. sanctions imposed on Russia, could you kindly share with us about the role of the FBI's kleptocracy program in preventing instability and wars by kleptocrats and authoritarian regimes? Well, yes, you know, I, I was very excited to be part of the FBI's kleptocracy program, and I was there during its infancy, and of course, right as I was leaving, we had developed a program where now there are in excess of 25 to 40 agents whose job it is to look at both uh, kleptocracy and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations. And so there's offices in New York, Washington field office, Los Angeles, uh, Miami, depending on what part of the world, what, which kleptocratic regime uh, the FBI is looking at. And the role of the FBI is that First of all, we have partnerships with foreign governments where uh, we help them fight corruption. And the reality is, is when you look at corrupt regimes, you usually see chaos. There, are, an example is Russia. An example is Equatorial Guinea, South Sudan, uh, Venezuela. Right? You have starvation. You have unemployment. You have political unrest. And if those kleptocracies are run by a dictator, you have pretty much a one-party system. In China, Jinping has made himself president for life. Maduro is not leaving Venezuela anytime soon or easily. Putin has cemented his position in Russia. So uh, you have everything is in a shambles, right? I mean, you have no democracy. The people of the country have no voice. Open society, journalists are prosecuted and wrongfully detained or sometimes killed. Corruption runs amok and all of the money in the country goes into the hands of a few people and, and often never benefits the people of that country. I mean, you really rarely see a kleptocratic regime where the people of that country are thriving. And in his first State of the Union address, President Joe Biden said, I quote, The U.S. Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of Russian oligarchs. He further sent a message to Russia. We're joining with our European allies to find and seize your yachts and your luxury apartments, your private jets. We're coming for your ill-begotten gains, unquote. The vast majority of Americans are beginning to hear and learn more about the ways in which post-Soviet Russia's criminal economic system came into being and how figures dating back to President Boris Yeltsin and his daughter and later on Putin creating this nexus of oligarchs, rapidly accumulating wealth during the era of Russian privatization, the aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. Today, Russia's kleptocratic elite face sanctions from the United States and the European Union. Deb, could you share with our listeners some of the details of this new task force? And how will we be able to measure the success of this new, dedicated group announced by President Joe Biden to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs? You know, it's really interesting is that the majority of international trade and, and unfortunately or fortunately, a great deal of illicit money movements throughout the world are done in U.S. dollars. So that means most of those transactions are circuiting through U.S. financial institutions to or through those banks and investment houses. Dirty money from all over the world is often invested in U.S. properties, uh, foreign properties, but were purchased in U.S. dollars. 
And all of those types of things give the United States the opportunity and the ability to go after the assets that are illegally derived from Russian oligarchs, as well as other corrupt regimes. I think what President Biden's task force is doing is taking our kleptocracy initiative one step farther to focus just on, at this time, the Russian oligarchs and the corruption out of uh, Russia. President Putin is allegedly worth over $40 billion, that he took great steps to secure his finances prior to this. It's going to be well hidden. It's going to be in the names of other people. But he does have properties. He has bank accounts. He has investments, as well as all of those in his inner circle. And a number of those uh, within Putin's inner circle were sanctioned by the United States in 2014 when uh, Russia invaded and stole Crimea annexed, as they say, as a a way to address that invasion. We can go into greater detail, but uh, Putin's role in weakening the government of the Ukraine so that he could invade has been a long 10-year process or more. And uh, it's very interesting from an intellectual point of view, but devastating from the humanitarian point of view. So in response to Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, The U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control and the U.S. Department of State intensified pressure on Russia by sanctioning numerous Russian elites and their family members, blocking certain properties of these persons and sanctioning Russian intelligence-directed disinformation outlets. The aid and resources of these individuals, their family members and other key elites have allowed President Putin to continue to wage the ongoing unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Deborah, could you kindly share with us about some of the assets that have been blocked by the U.S. sanctions and what are the next steps in seizing these properties? We still have to follow U.S. law. What we are doing is working with all of our foreign partners to determine how these mega yachts aircraft uh, and other uh, luxury condominiums were purchased? Where did the money come from? Because the United States to go after these assets has to do an investigation. We have to show that they were from an illegal deal, from a result of a bribe payment that provided them with uh, illegal assets and and funds. So it's not an overnight success. There might be enough probable cause to seize it and, and take possession of it. And then prior to it being forfeited, an investigation to to follow dollar for dollar, um, because the United States with civil forfeiture has to trace the money back to criminal conduct, which I don't think will be difficult to do because in a great many of these, obviously, uh, there were bribes, kickbacks, dirty deals conducted during the privatization of factories. I worked uh, this type of corruption years ago where I would trace bribe payments to oligarchs in that region. And uh, you would see that uh, companies were awarded when the privatization happened, the companies were awarded to those individuals who were willing to kick back anywhere from 20 to 50% of their profits to the individual who applied the correct pressure and made them get the company in the first place. A lot of that's already known. And so that money will be being traced to these yachts, to these aircraft, to the properties. Deb, some are stating publicly that the initial set of sanctions are not really deterring Putin at all, because it certainly takes time. The recent wave of bombings targeting 17 medical facilities, including the brazen bombing of a maternity hospital, reveal an escalation of indiscriminate bombings 
and also targeting residential areas. Now, U.S. intelligence estimates put the number of civilian deaths above 2,000 and as many as 10,000 injured in the many days of fighting. Senators Reich and Toomey have advanced the idea through their co-sponsored bill backed by 37 U.S. senators. The never-yielding Europe's territory, also known as NIET Act, S-3652, adds this important and more crippling secondary sanctions on Russia. And these are secondary sanctions on banks that continue business with sanctioned banks in Russia. In fact, the International Leadership Summit and its leadership board and its partners have sent a letter to President Joe Biden with a principal message, a call to immediately impose secondary sanctions on Russia's entire financial sector. And today, too many Russian banks are not effectively sanctioned and these institutions continue to aid Putin's war machine. Uh, We all believe that America's secondary sanctions will give financial institutions around the world a choice either to support Russia's economic system, which funds Putin's war chest and his war machine, or lose access to the U.S. financial system. Deborah, we truly thank you for joining all of us at International Leaders Summit and co-signing this letter that was sent to President Joe Biden. From your understanding, Deb, of secondary sanctions similar to the crippling sanctions imposed on Iran, how do you see this impacting Putin's Russia and businesses in other countries who want to continue aiding Russia's oligarchs and the Russian government? Yes, secondary sanctions are a, a wonderful idea, and, and it's it's a great thing that they are being considered and hopefully soon implemented. Uh, because I can tell you, Putin and his inner circle anticipated the first wave of sanctions. You know, you just don't invade a country and think there's not going to be any consequence. So for the first wave of sanctions, the government of Putin was anticipating those. What they may not be anticipating are several other factors. One would be the secondary sanctions. They're a great idea. And you have to understand, and these banks and other businesses have to understand, that there is a price to going down on the wrong side of history, which is where I believe Putin will fall in this, as the aggressor, an unprovoked aggressor. So the secondary sanctions are an excellent idea. They will have an impact. What you have to understand is Putin's already diverted money for the last so many years into his military. So nothing we do right now is going to limit the number of bullets, tanks, aircraft, and uh, bombs that are currently in, you know, he's not buying them today to use them tomorrow. He's already stockpiled these. So the aggression will go on. However, there are many steps being taken right now that are crippling the Russian economy. And secondary sanctions is an excellent next step for the United States government. What I also applaud is those companies that have decided to go in and cut ties. It's interesting because Um, Years ago, 25 years ago, I worked on the Norfolk Naval Base in Norfolk, Virginia, and the McDonald's across the street from the carrier piers, where each carrier carries 5,000 sailors, was the busiest McDonald's in the world, right? Until they opened McMoscow. Uh, The McDonald's in Red Square became one of the busiest McDonald's in the world, uh, as well as one in Beijing. And so the fact that McDonald's has closed their McDonald's 
Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and Nike is shutting down their store, as well as more than 130 other corporations, and I'm sure that that number is going up daily, have decided to cut ties. Another thing that is an effective tool that I would not have thought of, but I'm a huge supporter of, that major law firms have decided to cut ties with several Russian oligarchs as well as Russian businesses. So that will uh, make it very difficult for the oligarchs to fight legal action against their yacht and against their aircraft and uh, shutting down. I mean, it is sorry that, you know, the people of Russia did not vote. Let's go and invade Ukraine. So many of them have no idea why they no longer have access to their money, why there's a run on the banks, while suddenly it's going to be difficult to get food and other necessary supplies or to conduct their business. And it's unfortunate, but Putin, I don't think he realized that the international community would have tools alongside the United States government, uh, the government of the UK, uh, Switzerland. uh, You know, Switzerland usually remains neutral. They stepped up to the plate. There are so many countries that are saying, no, you know what, this could be us. And we would want the international community to step up and, and help us protect our borders. So I think anything the United States can do, the secondary sanctions are ideal. But my applause also goes out to every corporation who says, you know what, we're doing the right thing. It's going to cost us money, but that's okay. And are stopping and severely, hopefully crippling the Russian economy. Right. And that's that's a good development because as part of the efforts to further deny Russian elites the benefits of the kleptocracy and ensure the effective implementation of our financial sanctions, a number of countries have demonstrated their support for Ukraine and the commitment to hold Russia's authoritarian leadership responsible for the actions. And among these countries are countries of European Union, United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, the Republic of Korea and Australia. However, a number of countries, banks, companies and politically exposed persons in those countries have benefited from Russia's oligarchs' bank accounts and real estate property investments in those countries. Deb, how do we make sure that these countries enforce the implementation of imposed sanctions and how can the U.S. Department of Justice support criminal prosecutions? That's going to be difficult. I mean, there's always going to be ways to hide transactions. There are banks who will maybe publicly uh, support the sanctions against Russia. And then in theory, yes, but in practice, no. Uh, This happened with Iran, where banks were uh, altering wire transfer data to uh, hide the fact that money was going to or from Iran. So uh, we're, we're just going to have to impose our own due diligence to make sure that uh, banks are complying. I will tell you that several individuals that have been sanctioned by the UN have been allowed to move to China. China is coming down on the side of Russia in a lot of this aggression. And I'm sure that they have also bankrolled uh, a lot of this or are keeping Putin assets safe. As you've mentioned that uh, as countries, including the United States of America, UK, our NATO allies have certainly formed this important coalition to stand up against Russia's Putin on a defensive scale, uh, but at the same time imposing these sanctions. And and I would say that uh, joining others in communicating how President Zelensky of Ukraine has really been this formidable figure who has inspired us all. 
uh, his Churchillian statements and speech that he just even recently gave uh, via a video conferencing that was connected to the mother of all parliaments in Westminster in London itself, where he said, we will not surrender. And I think that has not just only inspired individuals in the West, but around the world to seeing people fighting for freedom. And from your vantage point, Deb, what can our fellow Americans do? Engage citizens and activists in the special sphere to hold kleptocratic elites and corrupt governments to account? And what are some of the perhaps practical ways in which even business leaders can join in addressing this great scourge of corruption now destroying sovereign nation states? Well, one of the very first things I would do is also look at Russia's footprint in the United States. I mean, I can tell you there are mining operations and other businesses in the United States that are funded in part with Russian money. I mean, obviously, the very first thing was that the United States was buying 21% of its oil from Russia. So that had to stop. And, and the reality is knowing that Russia is our competitor, that Russia is an aggressor, that Russia is not a free state for commerce and communication. I have to ask, why was the United States buying 21% of our oil from Russia in the first place? Uh, so I would encourage the United States government to take a very good look at Russia's footprint within our own borders, because that's information where the information will be quicker quickly obtained and action could be quickly taken. And then I would also encourage the other governments, the UK, Switzerland, the EU, and Dubai. We know that so much Russian wealth is uh, being sent to the real estate market in Dubai, as well as Dubai banks. So we would hope that Dubai would, uh, and the UAE would step up to the plate as well. Because again, when this is all analyzed down the road, Russia will fall on the wrong side of history. We want that to happen. You look at Zelensky, President Zelensky, he has empowered his people. And the great thing about President Zelensky is that to my knowledge, he has never been a Putin puppet. As you all may know, when Yanukovych, President Yanukovych, fled Ukraine in 2014, within days, I was on the ground in Kiev, and uh, I was investigating some of the $40 billion that was siphoned out of the Ukrainian budget under the few years that Yanukovych was in office. And Yanukovych was most certainly a Putin puppet. When he fled along with, I think it was 30 or 40 of his inner circle, they all fled to Russia, where they have been living very happily and well off of their money since uh, 2014. And I was asked once about, you know, the Yanukovych regime and uh, the looting of state assets. And I said, it is literally, you're talking about the financial rape of a country. And when $40 billion leaves, when I landed in Kiev, I, I introduced myself to my counterparts and, and, you know, like, hi, you know, I'm Debbie Lapravada with the FBI. And they're like, there's Russians lining up on our Eastern border. And they literally, and some of them had no bullets for their guns. And it's because I think that uh, Yanukovych working with President Putin diverted all of the money away from the military, weakened their economy so that it made it possible for Putin to come in and annex Crimea to place more people along their eastern border in the areas that are loyal to Russian separatists and do such damage to the Ukrainian financial and economic uh, safety and security there. So I think that really has to be looked at. Again, President Zelensky 
is not clearly not a supporter of separatism or of uh, President Putin. And I pray that he remains and his family remains safe and continue the fight uh, in Ukraine. You, we applaud your efforts in, in seizing assets actually that you found uh, via U.S. accounts. And uh, actually, this was a blessing because when properties are in the U.S., we have a legal mechanisms to go after them if they are owned by kleptocrats. And do you anticipate, because we, you can read in various reports that U.S. is still one of the major tax havens in, in the world because of the companies that can be established in Delaware, Wyoming, South Dakota. And do you anticipate any new laws in the United States in order to have more transparency and accountability when registering the companies, just in case, and in those cases where you need to know who are the real owners of the companies, especially when they are coming from from Eastern Europe or other kleptocratic, autocratic countries. Yes, and you know, there's two parts to this. As you said, when I was with the FBI seizing the proceeds of foreign corrupt officials, I will let you know, the majority of that money was not in the United States. And so what is the great thing about the United States is when the money that was used to purchase a yacht and it's in the Caribbean or a villa in um, Guatemala or somewhere, the United States can seize it if, if we can show that it was purchased uh, with U.S. dollars, if the money moved through U.S. financial institutions, and if it's the proceeds of a crime. So, uh, you know, it's like we are not limited to seizing assets within the United States. But there are assets within the United States, and those can be obtained more quickly, and so they have to be looked at. Secondly, yes, Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, uh, Oregon, several of the U.S. states that are considered uh, easy places to incorporate a business. What's interesting is that the money isn't necessarily there, but they are using U.S. companies to add legitimacy to fraud. A really excellent group, the FACT Coalition, has been pushing legislation in the U.S. for transparency and beneficial ownership of U.S. corporations. And I believe it passed. So yes, there will be uh, excellent legislation that will require U.S. corporations to identify their true beneficial owners. And, and that is great. But let me tell you, it took a lot of work. I was a minor benefit to them. But one of the things I did is I looked up all the U.S. companies that had been identified in, in foreign and abroad uh, scandals. And I'm like, look, this uh, Delaware corporation was used in a Ponzi scheme in Italy. This Oregon company was used in a, a $30 million fraud in Ukraine. And so I think it's very important that there is full transparency to the full beneficial owners. And I think that, you know, quite honestly, a new task force could be incorporated. And let me tell you, Russia is one of the biggest users of U.S. corporations. I think I mentioned this to you when we've spoken in the past, but while I worked for the FBI, there was an Oregon group that got a $60 million vaccine contract in Ukraine, and it was determined that they only provided $30 million worth of uh, pharmaceuticals, which means on that one contract, someone walked away with $30 million. I contacted the gentleman who incorporated that business. And I said, well, who called you? Who called you and said, help me set up an Oregon company? And they said, oh, RJ Services out of Belarus. And so I said, well, how many US corporations have you incorporated for that company out of Belarus? They're like, oh, 1956. 
right? There's 1,956 companies with one service provider for uh, probably Russian, Ukrainian, and Soviet bloc country oligarchs who want to say that they're a Delaware corporation or an Oregon corporation and add an air of legitimacy when they are committing frauds and bribery. And it happens all over the world. But yes, I mean, if it's coming out of Belarus, you know, it's that region of the world. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we've been joined by Deborah Leprevot, a principal leader addressing global corruption and strengthening the rule of law. Deborah served as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and was instrumental in launching the FBI's kleptocracy program. And Deborah traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials. We thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us on America's Roundtable and for your continued efforts in addressing this significant challenge that we all are facing in America and around the world. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, and thanks for having me back on. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.